sometimes when people introduce Bill Manhire, it goes awards, blah, 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 poet laureate, blah, 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 brainy and influential, blah, 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 Institute of Modern Letters, blah, 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 and then a short bon mot of some description to reveal that the person speaking gets it. But I often don't get it with Bill's poems, so I've decided to... Uh, to uh, introduce Bill Manhire by explaining his impact on me. And I've waited two-thirds of my life to do this. I began at Victoria University in 1982. I'd come from Wellington College. We had the cane and the strap. Latin was compulsory. We called our teachers sir. We had right answers and wrong answers and the embarrassment of the former and the dread of the latter. And English had been Shakespeare, Kipling and poor young Rupert Brooke. And then I started at Vic, and sometime very early on, a man called Bill introduced me to American poetry, and I'd lived a sheltered and unworldly life. E. Cummings, who didn't even have capitals in his name. And William Carlos Williams, who wrote, this is just to say I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. How is that even a poem? And as I waited for one of the masters from Wellington College to track Williams down and cane him for his impertinence, a light went on in my head and my heart that has never gone out. And when I discovered that my lecturer was himself a sparkling poet, that he too wrote as if there were no rules, as if the words didn't need permission, as if we could all read his poems differently and all be right, I began to understand two things that I'd not understood prior to that. One, that words are not schoolboys, that they are not prescribed or limited by boundaries or rules. And two, life was not elsewhere, that what I didn't even really know I'd been looking for was right here in front of me. Isn't that what you hope for when you go to university? That was 38 years ago. They have flown by. I have a daughter at Vic now. I hope her most joyful discoveries will stay with her as those discoveries have stayed with me. And throughout that time, the love of poetry Bill Manhire and others gave me during my years in the Von Ziedlitz building has been central to keeping me afloat. And I've purchased every book I have ever seen with Bill's name on it. And when I got Wow, his 15th poetry collection, his 15th collection of original poems, as opposed to anthologies, and read the first poem, Huia, which I believe is among the finest of the many, many fine poems Bill has ever written, not that I'm a critic or was even, as Bill will tell you, a very good student, but it made me grateful and it made my heart speak to my eyes in the ways I always hope poems will do, I felt an extraordinary sense of luck. We need poems, not only to help us make sense of things, but because life is fumbling and unrehearsed, and sometimes poetry is the hand in the dark that reassures you there are other people here, and that you may not be as lost as you think you are, or that you may all be lost together. For four decades, Bill's poetry and the poetry of the people Bill first introduced me to, and the poetry of the people who've come out of Victoria's Institute of Modern Letters and other New Zealand poets who may have found some inspiration and encouragement in that work, have been enduring, brilliant, consoling, forgiving, undemanding friends, and I've often relied on them. I was an easily distracted student, but my best study has been in the years since Vic, and what I found there I have carried through my life. That's all, that's my introduction but it's been 40 years in the making. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, an admiration, appreciation and gratitude, Bill Manhire. I think we'll stop now, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good note to end on. I got a bit overwhelmed because I've been wanting to say that for a long time. 
I was such an ordinary student that I never felt that if I came up and told you you'd make a difference to me, you'd think, Jesus, that, you know, that C-plus kid. So it's nice to be able to tell you now. Well, you weren't C-plus, but the, the good thing about you as a student... I wonder if I'm still waiting for an essay from you on, on William Butler Yeats. <laughs> but what I remember about you in poetry classes... Uh, I mean, small poetry classes, English honours. Yeah, yeah. Is if a poem hit you in the way poems can hit people, you were just visibly overjoyed. Mm. And that made everybody else overjoyed. And that's what you've gone on doing, mm, seems you. to me. Well, you were hitting me with those poems. It was, I felt such gratitude. Yeah. I, 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 this, so this is, wow, this is Bill's new collection. I really can't recommend it highly enough. I know it's a pro forma thing to say it at book launches or at writers' festivals, but it is just extraordinary. And I read it. In fact, can, can I ask you, can we read, can you, can you read one for us to start sure. so that we can just settle in with it? I, I wouldn't, I suppose the title poem, but I wonder, could we start with Huya? Sure. I just, this, this is a, such a good poem. And, and when I first read it, I thought, I get that, but I keep returning to it and getting it in new and different ways. It's really, really good. So can, would you mind reading it for us and then we can talk about it? Sure, okay. Huya. I was the first of birds to sing. I sang to signal rain. The one I loved was singing and singing once again. My wings were made of sunlight. My tail was made of frost. My song was now a warning and now a song of love. I sang upon a postage stamp. I sang upon your coins. But money courted beauty. You could not see the joins. Where are you when you vanish? Where are you when you're found? I'm made of greed and anguish, a feather on the ground. I lived among you once, and now I can't be found. I'm made of things that vanish, a feather on the ground. <laughs> it's so good. It's such a good poem. It's a poem about, uh, it's a poem about our arrogance, isn't it? Our solipsism. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. And it's a poem about uh, mutability and, and, yep. and ephemerality. Yep. But it's also a poem about facing... Things bigger than us, right? And, and that's such a theme of yours. Well, I suppose the theme it sets off in this book uh, is a theme to do... I mean, I don't, people don't write themes. No, I know. You know. But you find you've written a number of pieces that circle around the same territory. Uh, so the territory that it, as it were, points to, with its single remaining feather, as it were, is, is, is simply species loss, climate change environmental damage, the sort of world that I would say my grandchildren's children are going to be dealing with in terrified ways. Uh, so, yeah, so the Huia is a... It's also one of those poems that you could read as sad lament or, or as vehement attack, you know. And it's hard to know, I think, when you read that poem or when I read it as a reader now, uh, rather than the person who wrote it. It's hard to know quite what the tone is. Sometimes the tone 
isn't like a sad Leonard Cohen song or something, and sometimes it's like a, a really tough Bob Dylan number. You know, that's. Do you, you remember? What, do you remember what you intended? No, I, I mean the the weird thing about this is that it was a commission. It was a songwriting That's right. commission. That's right, yeah. yeah. Gareth Fard. So I, wrote, I wrote it for Gareth Fard. Yeah, yeah. I wrote uh, four other, yeah. four other uh, birds, but mostly birds that are in trouble. Uh, and it was the one... And, and the songs are good, and Gareth has done nice things with them, and Julian Van Mallet, who yeah, yeah. commissioned them, has, sings them beautifully, wonderfully, you know. But... Uh, it was the one that I thought lived as a poem, you know, quite... It actually didn't need anyone's no, music no. attached to it, uh, but the words themselves. <laughs> I mean, that's often the thing with poems. Uh, I mean, composers love getting poems and setting them to music. And there's, there's a great story that... Uh, is it Debussy tells? Or some, someone tells against Debussy, I think? Uh, Anyway, I, th I think he set a, a poem by Mallarmé, uh, or may maybe just made some music. Is Afternoon of a Fawn Debussy? His? Right, we're there. Okay. So, okay, so Debussy writes Afternoon of a Fawn, invites Mallarmé, who wrote the poem, along to the performance. Uh, Mallarmé listens to it, goes up to Debussy afterwards and says, Oh, brilliant, Monsieur, blah, 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 blah. And away he went home. And then he said to a friend the next day, he said, I thought I had set it, I thought I had set it to music already. Uh, and I think that's what poets feel when they've done a really good poem. It's already set to music. Mm -hmm. And you don't want some composer coming along and improving it. Uh, <laughs> because it's all, already got that in it, if it's any good, anyway. Yeah, yeah and there's absolute music in your poems. So, so, so we have the hooey a feather, mm -hmm. and then we have the baby saying wow yeah, yeah. in the same book. Yeah. And, 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 and we have the sense of how we have imperiled the baby and the mm -hmm. baby's baby. Yeah. And, and then the use of the word also, which recurs throughout wow, and is also the title of the poem. Well, you've been reading closely. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I just wanted to make up for when I was a student. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so can, we, can we use wow? Can we start with wow? Can we start with that sense of the infinite, the possible, mm. the hope of that? And then where you go in that poem? Do you, would you mind reading us that poem? Yeah, you, can, yeah. can I stand up to read it? Yeah, 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 yeah. If you, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, so this, this is the title poem. Wow. Big Brother says also, but the baby always says wow. Though soon enough she too is saying also and listening to her father say later and to the way her mother sighs and says now would also be a very good time. The ghost would love to say also but cannot actually say anything aside from that quiet whooshing sound and now there are babies everywhere all saying wow for a time and the children grow and the children grow and the wife goes off for a bit of a break and never comes back. Also, the lawn gets away on him, one thing after another. Now, the old fellow wants his bed sheets changed. No one to do it. Also, the nappies they make him wear. Also, he wants an apple and new teeth to eat it. But in this place, 
where he has recently landed, which is where he has always been. Every day is day after day, so you cannot have everything. The whole lot has to be later. Listen hard now to how we all say goodbye and maybe and wait just a minute, not hearing the world say back to us, wow, there's not much difference in it. And this way, you will get to hear his very last sigh, the sound of a plane powering down when it reaches the gate and all of us getting to our feet. So if we have wow and the juxtaposition of also, what are you telling us, Bill? Well, I think also is what life does to you, you know. You, you start off going, wow, as a baby, because that's all you can do. But, you know, there you are in the world. My God. Uh, and the world says back to you, wow. I mean, that's, those are the moments, I think, when, as an adult, you're most in the kind of wow position when you look at a <laughs> newborn child, you know, and you just, it's astonishing. Uh, but eventually someone says, oh, you better come and do this, and have you remembered to do that, and, you know... Blah, blah, blah. And suddenly the world is full of these also's which draw you in because you have to be a responsible human being uh, and limit you and close you down in certain ways. I mean, I mean, that's what I think is so terrific about great poetry, uh, great art, great music, is that it gives us back the wow, mm-hmm. as it were. You know, And sometimes it stops time and you step out of time into that sort of immediate world where you're just in the presence of this extraordinary thing. When you, when you see on the page that you've found the wow, what does that feel like? Ooh. I don't feel I've achieved a, a, a meaning. I feel I've achieved a particular piece of music, I think. My favourite definition of poetry is the one supposed to have been stated by the Uh, French poet Paul Valéry, who said, the poem is a prolonged hesitation between sound and sense. And (laughs) I like that. Sound meaning the noise the poem makes, the music it has. Sense meaning the meaning it has. And a poem itself hesitates forever between both poles, and sometimes it drifts to the music and is entirely happy with that. Sometimes it drifts or races to the meaning and is pleased with that when it encounters it. But most of the time, it's just in this prolonged, hesitating state. And I love that. Uh, And I think that's what I would like a good poem to to do Mm. to a reader as well, that you're hearing the music, you're also getting the meaning, you don't know which matters most to you. You need both. And one will predominate sometimes and the other other times. But, and that's not quite an answer to your question. No, it's a great answer to my yeah. question. And, and I think everyone in this room will know exactly what you're talking about. And I think that beautiful balancing act mm. between meaning and music is yeah. part of the joy of your poems. And sometimes, for me, it's the feeling or the music, and I have no idea what the poem's about. And other times I think, yes, I get that. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, this method of my madness, because we're heading to this beautiful blog that you've just written about these kinds of voices, these kinds right. of blokes. Yeah, yeah. I need, I need to explain this poem, actually. It's not about, but it springs from having 
seen a television news item about Colin Meads when he died. And some of his old mates were presumably at the wake or had just come out of the wake or whatever. And uh, there was some discussion about how Colin Meads had met his wife and, you know, what attracted him to this wonderful woman and so on. And this bloke said he loved her lemonade scones. <laughs> and I thought, that sounds like a poem. Did you think that straight away? Yeah, I did, yeah. And, I, and did you write it straight away or did you just set it aside? I think I wrote it a few days later. Yeah, yeah I sort of knew I was going to hang on to that. He loved to eliminate scones phrase. Uh, and I made that the title. So I'll read you the poem. This is, yeah, yeah, courtship, uh, king country style. Uh, he loved to eliminate scones. They fell in love between the end of the footy season and the start of shearing. Sheep gazed, bewildered. The paddocks stretched up into the hills, mostly scrub and a few old stands of bush. Now listen here, he said. That was it, really. (laughs) (laughs) It's a beautiful poem. (laughs) You know what's beautiful about it? It's, It's tender. You're tender with them, aren't you? Yeah, it's not too vicious, really. He's certainly a male New Zealander. He might once have been a jockey, or maybe he's rural, maybe a retired farmer, or he might have worked on the railways and now be living in a caravan, or living in a caravan in someone's backyard. And you've created this kind of composite person who you say doesn't exist. But for me, when you use him, when you go and pull that voice out, he's very real. Mm. And you talk in in one poem about your uncle who was a butcher. Is that true? Did you really have an uncle who was a butcher? Yeah, that was a Scottish uncle. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if this is the sound of... This is the, your childhood in Southland, in Vicargill. The, you know, your dad was a public, and I just wonder if you knew these men, if their voices are somehow in oh, your head. Yeah, they were all over the place. I mean, I, I grew up in little country pubs, really, as a child, in Wallacetown, Mossburn, Clinton, those sorts of places. As far, you know, eventually got to Dunedin and thought, wow, this is a big place. Uh, when I was... 12. Uh, Christchurch I've always thought of as a large wicked city somewhere up in the north, you know. Uh, and, and in those pubs there were always ancient fellows who wandered out of the bush or, you know, lived in caravans or sheds and drank a bit and loved holding forth. I mean... Did, hold, did hold. They? So they weren't taciturn, they actually, they wanted to talk. Yeah, I think they came to the pub to talk. They'd, they'd sit there drinking by themselves, but if someone else appeared, they'd immediately start complaining about, you know, whatever, whatever was necessary to complain about. Yeah, there were lots of people like that. And I think I mentioned in this blog you're talking about a guy who uh, used to drink in the public bar of the Crown Hotel in Dunedin when I would have been a high school kid, I think. And I remember sort of maybe I was cleaning the the drinker trays, one of the horrible jobs I had. I don't know if anyone remembers, there was a stage where you had these sort of island bars that people lent around Mm. and they brought their jugs, and the pubs we were in in Dunedin screwed little AG jars into the middle, filled them with water, and everybody smoked, of course, and all the butts were dropped, and really disgusting. That was my job, you know, as a high school kid, to empty those. Uh, But anyway, this, this, this old guy, I don't know why, but he started talking to me and told me about uh, how he had been a small boy once 
just after the First World War, and he'd sat in the back of the, the carts that the Salvation Army, uh, you know, used. I mean, there, there, was, there were sort of processions and demonstrations by the temperance prohibition movement. So here was this old guy drinking at half past ten in the morning and, and remembering the fact that he was on one of the... It was a horse and cart, I believe. So he was dressed in his nice white shirt, all scrubbed and clean, and they simply, you know, went down the main street of Dunedin chanting, strike out the top line, strike out the top line, saving our souls for Jesus. And there he was. <laughs> but, you know... And how old were you when you heard that? Oh, maybe 14, 15, something like that. And did you hear poetry then? Did you, did you, I mean, did you, was there a part of you that knew that that was going to, you were going to carry that? Oh, possibly. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, pe people often look back and, and talk about the music they listened to when they were teenagers and so on, and I, I can do that, of course. But I was remembering the other day that a lot of what I listened to when I was at high school uh, were uh, The Goon Show or Peter Sellers LPs. The whole mimicry thing was very, very big. Uh, Peter Ustinov, too, yes, his yes, LPs. Yes. Uh, and I think I wanted, anyway, all the time to be good at mimicking. You know, Were you? Did you? Did you do that? I used to be quite good at memory. Yeah, yeah. But the, but you're, you're still good at it. It's on so, the page. So yeah, it does drift onto the page. I think that sort of thing. If 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 your ear is used to listening and thinking, I can copy that. Uh, but then I've always had the notion that that's how we all. I mean, we all learn to talk by copying, don't we? Yes. You know. Uh, but but it's not just the it's not just the mimicry. It's not. It's also the way they speak. The you know the the the. The, the how little they say often, you know the the restraint of it, yeah, yeah. and the shyness of it, you know that. And I mean, it's very, very. I don't know when you do it, when you do those voices. I think they're beautiful, and I think there's a kindness. You, it's, it seems to me that you are you are hearing them in ways that sometimes the middle classes don't, you know, the, you know yeah, those yeah. of us who are tertiary educated don't hear those voices, Bill. Yeah. Can you tell me about the guy who stunk and used to walk in and get sprayed with? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is another pub, the St Kilda, but he would come in in the morning. Uh, he did live in a shed in someone's garden in St Kilda. Uh, and he really stunk. Uh, and I, I remember he would stand there and hold up his arms like a little child waiting to be lifted by a parent. And the barman would go, uh, and spray his armpits. And then he would buy a drink. It was really pretty surreal. That's a good story. I mean, that's the other thing. There's something surreal about a lot of these people. Yes. You know. and, and that brings us to the lovely point that you were discussing. Actually, it's the beginning of the blog, which is the Emily Dickinson thing. That You, you, you do understand that this is not all my biography, right? You yeah. do understand that some of this didn't happen to me or some of this isn't true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or, or some of this isn't my lived experience. Yeah. Do we understand that, do you think? I mean, even when Emily Dickinson was saying that, people were ignoring her. Everyone wanted to think that it was 100% autobiographical, really. Yeah. Do we understand that about poetry? No, I don't think people do. I don't think they do. You have to, you have to label it very strongly. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I, like I've got a poem in here. Uh, 
which imagines Noah not as someone who wanted to save the animals but thought he would save all the musical instruments from the flood. <coughs> and he says, oh, it's sad. I, I, we, we lost a few of them. And then he says something like, uh, I didn't really know about the animals. Someone else managed that. And I think we might, we might have eaten some of them. You know, uh, <laughs> but I thought, oh, God, I better, I better just call this poem Noah so that it's quite clear. <laughs> this, this is my invented version of y- Noah. Yes. And I... I there's a, there's a long poem somewhere that I've written called Brazil, which is basically written out of anthropology textbooks. Uh, and it's, I think it's a really good poem. I, I like it anyway. And I quite often have people say to me, loved your poem, Brazil. What an interesting time you had. Because <laughs> <laughs> people, that's the default uh, response yes. to poetry. That it's, what, it's a true account of what happened to the poet rather than a made-up thing in which the poet has some of his or her life. Do we need to know whether it's true? Is it important whether or not it's true? Well, it's not important to me. No. Uh, and it's not important to me to know whether the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock... Was Eliot. Was Eliot. Although... A lot of it was Eliot. Yeah, you, you know. sort of sense it, a lot of it was. Yeah, it's just his convenient disguise, but I don't, you know, I don't need to know whether he wore his but, trousers but, rolled or... Yeah. You know. Why do we want poetry to be true? I don't know. I, well, I suppose what, what, what happens is that we've inherited the whole romantic tradition, the Wordsworth, the Wordsworth position and the Keats position and the Coleridge position, that, that poetry has to be uh, genuine agony. A bit of agony is good. We approve of that in a poet. Spontaneous overflow of feelings. Was that those boys? Spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Yeah. That's Wordsworth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, Wordsworth also wrote uh, the phrase emotion recollected in tranqu- tranquility, you know, at which point you've started to make it up. Uh, so he was having it both ways, I, I believe. So, so when you started writing, were people confused given that romantic tradition and given that that had very much informed, as a collector of second-hand books, you very rarely find old American second-hand books in New Zealand. They're all English second-hand books. So our tradition of literature had been absolutely informed from that line, hadn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so at first were people saying, what the hell are you doing, Bill? Did people get it? No, no, because, I mean, all, all my early poems are, are, are sort of sad little love poems. <laughs> totally from the heart, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, no, I never really bumped into that. Maybe a bit later, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell me about the Institute of Modern Letters and the, and the joy of hearing voices and thinking, to quote your book, wow, what, what was that like? What was it like when they came in and you thought... <sighs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, that's obviously total wow territory. Uh, I kind of never know what to say about that. It just... Uh, I mean, the, 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 the great thing was this very strange American casino tycoon turned up in New Zealand and wanted to make the creative writing program at Victoria part of his so-called International Institute of Modern Letters, which had three branches in the States uh, as well. Uh, And he was offering so much money at that point. A lot of it never appeared, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But he was offering so much money that uh, it meant that I could say to the university, I want to take the creative writing program away from the Department of English, which does not love it or care for it, uh, and put it in a little building 
by itself. I tried to talk Vincent O'Sullivan, actually, into letting us go and join the Stout Centre, which Vincent was running at that stage, but the university wouldn't let that happen either. Anyway, so, so it was a total standalone. It was like a secret place on campus, you know, like a, yes, yes, like yes. a club rooms and people needed the password. <laughs> you know, it had that feel about it uh, for me. Uh, so we were in a little house with a harbour view on the edge of campus, but just behind the library, so books were easy to come by. And there were only 12 people in the room, plus me. 10 people in the room, plus me, for the MA programme. And we started some other smaller workshops as well. And, I mean, that, that sort of thing just runs itself. You know, I mean, you don't have to be... You don't have to be a kind of powerful personality or even a particular, particularly wise and thoughtful person. Are you, are you being self-effacing? No, I'm not. I'm not. You, you, you put ten really talented people in a room together with someone who, you know, moderates the discussion a little bit. They'll do it all themselves. And, I mean, one of the things I think is pretty remarkable about a lot of the MA classes that have gone through the IIML is that they go on meeting, hmm. you know. I mean, geography is pushing them away from each other all the time. But they go on meeting, and they, they don't need the person who was the, the teacher to be there any longer. They, they know how to talk to each other. They yeah. know yeah. how to support each other. I, I know people who've done that course. You, you, I mean, you're being generous to them, and I am I absolutely certain that, it, that that would happen. But they say that you brought out their best selves. They say with great gratitude that when they were good, you made them understand it, and when they were less good, you made them understand it, and that you led that course in a way that was profoundly generous and profoundly kind and profoundly inspirational. Well, so, I think... So you're doing yourself a slight disservice, and uh, I want to put on the record what these people have told me. Yeah, they find that stuff out as they go along, of course, you know. I mean, uh, you know, they present something to the class and it doesn't go down very well, mm. it's going to occur to them that there's something wrong, you know. <laughs> you know, I don't need to say, well... <laughs> <laughs> but you want them to come back tomorrow, don't you? You do want them yeah, to come back Yeah, tomorrow. so it can't be utterly humiliating, can it? No, no. I mean, the, the, the deal in those writing classes has always been, I think, explicitly or, or just implicitly, that everyone is there to help each other person achieve the best version of the work they want to do mm. that is possible. That's what you're in the room for. You're in the room for that to happen to you, but you're in the room for that to happen for each other person as well. Mm. So the teacher is not, you know, the teacher is not there to say, look, this is how to do it. This is how I do it, and I expect you to do it like this too. The teacher is there to somehow point to what it is that each person is aiming to do or become uh, and to encourage everyone else to see that and to join in the process of helping them get there. I think that's, mm. that's the dynamic of mm. it, I think. Yeah. Would you like to do another reading for us? Is there a poem you'd like to pick from Wow that you'd like to read to us? Shall I read a sad poem? Yes. I like writing sad poems. This is a poem called Woodwork. Yes, it's a fantastic poem. Uh, and it's, it's just a thing that I read about in the paper. So, again, it had an, an occasion. You know, I wrote it about something. But towards the end, it, it, it finds its way to my own life mm. or childhood. 
would work. Children are building their teacher a coffin. There it is in the paper, somewhere in Holland, a good plain coffin made of many parts. And two of the children call each day and talk to the teacher to keep the teacher posted. Is she happy? She is ill, but quite contented. What will they give her to take with her into the earth at last or across those borders where only teachers travel? There is dark energy there and multiplication tables, and many children are in a room with chisels and planes and spirit levels. They must be making something wonderful. Everything needs to be straight. I made a boat, a tie rack, a wooden spoon. The boat sat on a mantelpiece in several different houses. It was happy with its yellow funnel. Somewhere it is sailing, and everywhere children are waving and working hard. They are building their teacher a coffin. I want to wear my ABs to Samoa badge. That's, I don't know why I want to wear that. It just is important to me. Mm-hmm. I made the All Blacks go to Samoa. I don't know why that matters so, it mattered so much to me. Yeah. But I love rugby and I hate racism. You mean you want to wear it in, yeah, yeah, in, in the coffin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my instruction. Yeah. yeah. Are you scared of it? What, of dying? Yeah. No, I'm not actually. I, I used to be really scared uh, because... Uh, I had this very primitive, totally... My wife used to say to me, do you want to be cremated or buried? (laughs) Cheerful question. (laughs) Uh, I'm laughing. (laughs) I mean, it's nice that people know these things, actually. And I could never answer. You know, I did try to think about it. Uh, But I always had this terrible feeling that my body would die, but somehow I would be conscious, you know. You know, not, you know, very primitive feeling that I couldn't shake off uh, and that if I was cremated I would feel the flames uh, and if I was in a coffin well you know yeah. the, the worms, you know, everything, mm. the insect world would get to work and, uh, and then I got really really ill about eight years ago and in the end had about 13 hours of uh, abdominal surgery which was not fun but Worked. Nice to have been there and nice not to be there any longer. Uh, and total anaesthetic. I was completely gone. I, I couldn't count the hours or watch the time ticking by as we have to do. So I, I woke up after the first big operation and thought, death can't be too bad, you know. <laughs> I'll just be gone. You know, I, I won't be here. I'll be, I'll be totally anaesthetised. And so, no, I'm not troubled about mm-hmm. it at all. Gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased about the referendum result. I, you know, I'm pleased to have the option of saying, excuse me, <laughs> I'd like to leave the room. But, you know, otherwise, all good. You're so in the room in this book. Mm. It's so vivid. It's so... I, I mean, I, it, this is a standout book, even by your own high standards. Do you know that? Do you know this is a really good one? I feel... Yeah, I feel, pretty, I feel pleased with it, John. Yeah. yeah. Do you? I do. And do you read the reviews? Uh, I will read the reviews when they come. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a lovely... When Hui was my poem of the week in The Guardian, did you read that? I did. I thought it was a great piece of writing. Wasn't it yeah. fantastic? Yeah. 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 Really, Isn't, really good. As a reader, she just so got it, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. And then she got you. 
Yeah. I don't know about this Tidju Cole on the back, though. Do who, what do we know about Tidju Cole? Uh-huh, is, that a, is that a Fergus Barrowman joke? Is Fergus no, no. here? Uh, he's a Nigerian. No, no, I know he exists. <laughs> but being the leading poet in New Zealand is like being the best DJ in Estonia, impressive enough on its own terms. <laughs> Isn't that good? I wrote well, to I, him. Yeah. I, I read that. You know, it was one of those articles, one of those things where people are travelling, and I think he was on a plane going somewhere in the Boston Globe, said, what are you reading as you fly off in your aeroplane? And one of the books he was reading was a book of mine called Lifted. Uh, and, and he made this joke about, you know, being the best DJ in Estonia. I thought, that'd be good to put on the back of it. <laughs> really good. Only if, I think it's only good if, DJ has, if Estonia has really good DJs. Have we yeah. bothered to check that? Well, I've, I have checked it for you, John. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I want you to be treated with the respect yeah. Yeah. you deserve, Phil. You didn't realise that I too had done my research. <laughs> uh, and I got in touch with Teju Cole, when, you know, after I asked him about and, uh, and and I tell you this because you know about music in ways that I don't. And he said to me, in a private communication, uh, I think you'll be delighted to know that the best DJ in Estonia is Maud Fustang, a pioneer of the electro house subgenre called Complexro. Does that mean anything to you? No. Well, a little bit. A little bit. You don't know about Complexro, John? No, no, I don't. Well, there you go. Well, I I, I want to talk about um, the... the, the, Do you feel the weight of your own reputation now when you write? In in other words, I, I love that your poems have always been true to yourself and that in them and... And there's one about, uh, where is it? God damn it, I've lost my own bookmarks because I'm fiddling so much. Oh, Pleasant Valley. Yeah, please, yeah, read it because yeah. it's so short and it's so willfully, beautifully, explicitly unpoetic. Yeah, I, 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 I love banal poetry. I actually love William McGonagall, you know. Uh, I think he's great. And there's something about poetry that falls on its face that is really satisfactory, <laughs> you know. Uh, Anyway, so this is called A Really Nice Trip, and I think you can... Certainly two of these are real places. If you're sort of in North Otago, you could do this trip. A Really Nice Trip. We went up Pleasant Valley, after which we came back down to Pleasant Flat. Then we went all the way out to Pleasant Point. It was a really nice trip. (laughs) And the, the point I'm trying to make is, did you think about not putting that in the book? <laughs> in I case someone walked into Unity, opened it at that page and thought, poor Bill. <laughs> is this what they write in the yeah. So, so I mean, are you intimidated by your own reputation? Because that's such a great joke. But you, ha- you, have, you, have to know you have to know it's a joke, or do you not give a damn? Uh. I don't think poets really have a reputation. You know, you have to, you have to lead a, a, a terrible, badly behaved life to have a proper reputation, I think, mm. you know. And, and when you started to write that poem, where were you, did you know where you were going? Did you know it was going to be, that, that it was going to end that way? Did you know that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I can see that it needs, <laughs> it needs the last line to be the title as well. You know, it needs the double joke. 
You know, so it's called a really nice trip. <laughs> and then it goes pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. <laughs> really nice trip, you know. So, so. It, but again, I, I, maybe that's a joke about, uh, you know, not quite the same kind of no. old Pākehā New Zealander we were talking about before, but someone who might be a cousin of that person, you know, out, out for a nice drive with the wife. Yeah, yeah. Really nice, really nice day out, Sunday afternoon drive. I imagine it as a 1950s trip, really. Yeah. In the car. Yeah. And, and the beautiful things about those lives is that would have become part of the narrative of that, of that couple, of that family. And they would they'd, he'd tell that yeah. story over and over, wouldn't he? Yeah, you're right. Years that's, later, that's he'd remember that. That's part of the that. pleasure of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, it was bad the first time, but he would repeat it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Tell everybody to do it. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you a good trip. You know. and, and she would say, tell them about Pleasant Point, dear. Yeah, that's <laughs> oh, right. yeah, we had yeah. a really nice trip. Yeah. <laughs> we all know, we all know them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it. Right. I want to. Uh, can you read the lives of the poets? We're almost. Are we? We're almost at an end here. Do you want? Well, do you want to pick? Can I want, pick a poem? Just, you, just to, because, to end with. Uh, I, I I don't know if it's a bad poem to read here or, or, or not, but I, it, it's it sort of sits at the end of the book and it's hidden as a sort of I don't know a secret track or something. And it's, it's a poem I, I've always thought of myself as someone who wasn't very good at writing public poems that step into a public space and make a statement about something that's happened. You know, I mean, for example, if you really hunted through my work a certain number of years ago, you could probably find poems that know about the Christchurch earthquake but don't proclaim it or put it in the title. Anyway, I, I found myself wanting to write mm -hmm. the day after a poem about the terrorist shootings here. Uh, and, and so I'll, I'll just read you the poem I wrote, which I also posted on Twitter the next day, and it, it had a, a sort of small viral life, I guess. Uh, I, I remember a high school teacher got in touch with me wanting to use it in a classroom uh, with these boys who were having trouble of course they were having trouble processing the whole thing. And I remember saying to him that it's in three stanzas and you can't have the last stanza without going through the first two, as it were. Uh, you'll probably see what I mean. It's called Little Prayers. Let the closing line be the opening line. Let us open ourselves to grief and shame. Let pain be felt and be felt again, may our eyes see when they cease crying. Let the closing line be the opening line. Let the seas storm, let the hills quake, let us inspect what makes us ache. Let there be tasks we undertake, let us make what we can make when the seas storm and the hills shake. May the rivers and lakes and mountains shine. May every kiss be a coastline. May we sing once again for the first time. May the children be home by dinner time. May the closing line be an opening line. Oh. It's the May the Children Be Home by Dinner Time gets me, that line. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful poem. Uh, 
Bill, we've reached the end of this section. Uh, this, have we reached the end of this session? Five minutes. Any questions from the floor? Yes. Um, Bill, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about your friendship with Ralph Hotere. <laughs> he was a good guy, actually, Ralph. And uh, the collaborations were very much Ralph grabbing my poems whenever it suited him and using them in his paintings. <laughs> <laughs> and occasionally we had a deal where I could, you know, grab any of his images and use them as, as I wanted as well. Uh, the thing that always struck me about Ralph was that, I mean, in a way, he was my best publisher, you know, totally, you know. So extraordinary to have your words inside one of his images. But... Uh, the, the, there was a series of poems called Song Cycle, which was a sort of dance music thing that toured around the country in a kind of avant-garde way in the mid to late 70s. And Ralph was supposed to have done the, the, the stage design for it. And he was going to do these long banners. Uh, and he never did them in time. You know, the dancers were going to move among these banners. It would be like a, a forest of canvas with words on and so on. But he never got around to doing it, so he invented some sort of slides that he dripped acid onto and they were projected over the dancers. But a year or two later, he did do the banners. They, they, were, they were just too late for the <laughs> performance. And they're stunning things. Yeah. You know. uh, but the thing that's great about them, and I think it's totally characteristic of him, is that on each of those banners, he acknowledges me, he acknowledges the two dancers, he acknowledges the two musicians. And you, you would think, why would he bother doing that? Why wouldn't he just produce the banners with, with the paint on? But somehow, as important as making the image was making the acknowledgement or, or the evident uh, convivial friendship that had led to the paintings, making, making, making that evident on, on the thing itself. Yeah. So that seemed to me a very strong aspect of what he was and what he was as a friend, you know. Mm. Um, Bill, ancient Icelandic, you have a degree in something? I do, I do. Yes. How, has that ever played any part in your life beyond studying for the degree? I did actually teach Old Icelandic at, at Victoria. John chose not to take that, <laughs> that course at honours level. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I studied the Old Norse sagas as a student. And that was what happened once upon a time. If you studied English at a university, you had to do Old English, you know, and I read the whole of Beowulf in Anglo-Saxon, Old English. Uh, and you could do Old Norse. So I did Old Norse and I ended up sort of studying it. And actually it's oddly temperamental. Uh, temperamentally it's, it's oddly, oddly right for a particular kind of South South Island temperament with mm. kind of laconic grunting goes on, you know. <laughs> uh, all of these old blokes that John's mentioning in some of my poems could have got on well in the Icelandic sagas. Uh, everything's very understated. Everything's fated, of course. Uh, you know, just as the gods are going to die at Ragnarök, so we're all fated to die, and therefore how we behave in the lives we lead are what... That's what matters, and that's what people will remember. Uh, my, my famous... So you've got to be laconic, you've got to be brave, you've got to be casual about the worst events. And my favourite bit is uh, 
There's a saga called Grettir's Saga. He's one of the most famous Icelandic outlaws. And in Grettir's Saga, there's a character who gets a spear through his stomach at some point. There's not all that much fighting in them, you know, but, but there is at this moment. So a guy gets a spear through the stomach. He looks down at the spear. Now, it's clear that he's, clear that he's going to die. And he says, oh, I see broad-bladed spears are in fashion this year. <laughs> and then he's gone. And I think, yes, those are my people. <laughs> well, they are and they aren't. I mean, yeah. Uh, wow was an extraordinary book, and you are an extraordinary writer. And, I'm, and, I, and at the top, I wanted to explain how much you have meant to me since I first met you and your writing in 1982. And the way you have the capacity to make me see things I had not seen before or to re-see things I hadn't, I hadn't noticed as well as I ought to have. That's an extraordinary gift. And your ability to write... You know, some of the poets I love, like Frank O'Hara, who you introduced me to, you know, he's kind of a heart poet. Mm. And other poets are head poets. Your ability to do both, your ability to use your head so brilliantly and then whack, deploy the heart, is a remarkable thing. And your body of work is a taonga, a national treasure of this country. And I'm so grateful for it, and I'm so grateful for what you made me understand. And I love spending time in your company, and it's been a wonderful afternoon. And I can't recommend this book highly enough. So, Bill Manheim, thank you for this, thank you for this, and thank you for everything. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Manheim. <laughs>